Hey, my name is Andrew Robinson. I'm an assistant producer on the Political Climate Podcast, and this episode is brought to you with support from Lyft. Lyft is continuing its leadership in creating a cleaner, healthier, and more equitable future with a bold commitment to reach 100% electric vehicles used on the Lyft platform by 2030. The shift to EVs will create opportunities for drivers to lower their costs and keep more of their earnings. Transportation currently accounts for the largest portion of greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S., and Lyft is committed to leading the way to decarbonize its platform through vehicle electrification. Learn more at liftimpact.com electric. I liked your suggestion, Shane. Uh, you should what, tell spray the, the audience with no, water like, like, around the horn. Talking. He should have a mute button where he can yeah. mute the microphone. Yeah, it, honestly, I mean, I'm not, I'm not even saying this to knock uh, President Trump, but if you want to have an interchange, sometimes you just have to be able to, to turn a microphone off. President Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden faced off in their first debate this week, where Fox News moderator Chris Wallace actually asked the candidates a question on climate change. We discussed the debate plus a grab bag of news in this episode of Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm Julia Piper, your host, a contributing editor at Green Tech Media, and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. The conversation you're about to hear was recorded on Tuesday night, debate night, with my co-hosts Brandon Hurlbutt and Shane Skelton. Brandon, a Democrat, previously served as chief of staff at the Department of Energy, and he is now co-founder of the advisory firm Bounders Dome Partners and an advisor to NGP Energy Technology Partners. Shane, a Republican, was previously an energy advisor to Representative Paul Ryan, and he is currently a partner with the consulting firm S2C Pacific. For this episode, the first one recorded in person in a very long time, we poured a few glasses of wine and broke down the energy and climate elements of the Trump-Biden debate and put those comments into context. We also discussed changes at the Supreme Court, energy legislation moving through the House and Senate, what kinds of electric vehicles can accommodate three car seats, and more. We'll kick things off with a brief compilation of statements made at the Tuesday debate before turning to our conversation. I hope you enjoy. What do you believe about the science of climate change and what will you do in the next four years to confront it? I want crystal clean water and air. I want beautiful clean air. We have now the lowest carbon. If you look at our numbers right now, we are doing phenomenally. But I haven't destroyed our businesses. Our businesses aren't put out of commission. If you look at the Paris Accord, it was a disaster from our standpoint. Do you believe that, that human Pollution, gas, greenhouse gas emissions contributes to the global warming of this planet? I think planet. a lot of things do, but I think to an extent, yes. I think to an extent, yes. But I also think we have to do better management of our forests every year. I get the question. A concern. You propose $2 trillion in green jobs. You talk about new limits, not abolishing, but new limits on fracking, ending the use of fossil fuels to generate electricity by 2035, and zero net emission of greenhouse gases by 2050. The president says a lot of these things would tank the economy and cost millions of jobs. He's absolutely wrong, number one. Number two, if in fact, when, when our, during our administration, the Recovery Act, I was able to, I was in charge, able to bring down the cost of renewable energy to cheaper than or as cheap as coal and gas and oil. Nobody's going to build another uh, uh, coal-fired plant in America. No one's going to build another oil-fired plant in America. It's all true, and here's He's the deal. He's talking about the Green hey, New Deal, and it's not two billion I'm or twenty billion, as you said. I'm it's one hundred trillion dollars. I'm talking about where they want to rip the down buildings and rebuild the building. No, it's the dumbest, not, most ridiculous. Not, where airplanes are out of business, where two car systems are out, where they want true. to take out the cows too. Not you know that's true. not true either, right? Not this true. is a this is a one hundred trillion. Look, that's more money than our country could make. 
in a hundred years if we're not going by the case. All right, let me, will, let me, let me, let me, because, because I actually, wait a minute, sir. I you guys, you're in my new house. We've out of the we're out of the garage. We progressed. I progressed out of my garage I used to live in, and now we're together again for the first time since COVID hit. Since gosh, February? Have we seen each other in 2020? Uh, I think we all got together once. I think you two might have seen each other. I think we all got together once in maybe maybe February. I think I was on the way to the airport for probably my last trip of 2020. Wow, so crazy. I thought you went on a trip somewhere. Well, no, I mean I've traveled for fun. During the, the pandemic, the, oh God. you know, pre-pandemic yeah. DC travel. <laughs> Hotels are cheaper now. You yeah. know, flights are less populated. It's, it's, a, it's a pleasant yeah. experience. Well, you told us you tested negative for COVID recently. Plus, uh, you're taking all the COVID precautions, right, Shane, while traveling? Absolutely. I got a Wisconsin Badger mask that I can wear proudly. So it sort of doubles as <laughs> good, representing. Good, good. your LAFC mask? You know, Brandon, I, I wore... Let me down, man. It's hard to watch. It's hard to watch. Someone actually came and consoled me. He's like, great jersey, man. It was a Vela jersey. He's like, ah, oh, but, you know, it's been rough. Like, those are not the conversations we were having last season. Well, Shane and I miss uh, doing our soccer games together and being with the 32-52. Well, speaking of rough, let's talk about tonight's debate. <laughs> um, where do we begin here? <laughs> well, the Mexican food and the beer was good. Mexican food and the beer was the most solid, consistent, understandable part of this evening. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what I expected tonight. I just know it wasn't that for, for whatever that's <laughs> well, worth. Well, what were you expecting? I mean, in some ways I thought it made, I thought it was in some ways better than I was maybe expecting in that there were some moments of substance. No one chased anyone around a stage. <laughs> I don't know. There was There was so much bickering. It was really hard to follow. But I just don't know if you followed all the coverage leading up to this debate, if you really expected a substantive debate tonight. I mean, it's like it's both disappointing and then having witnessed it. But I don't know that you really expected if any voter expected to like learn something. Or maybe you did. No, I, I mean, I think Joe Biden did try to articulate his vision and so many times was interrupted. I mean, it, I mean, Donald Trump totally disrupted that debate. Yeah, I the first 10 minutes, I really kind of wanted to get some popcorn, maybe some candy, maybe another bottle of wine, because I thought I didn't, it was uncomfortable, but I thought, where does this go for like 90 minutes? Uncomfortable? You Well, yeah. I mean, there was a lot, of, you, you couldn't, I mean, Biden was trying to speak. It was clear to me that President Trump was trying to rattle him or at least didn't have the patience to let him speak. The shut up man was like, Th- that was unexpected something. and you're like oh we're gonna have a viral like a debate collective you know shut up <laughs> he's speaking on behalf of the country yeah it was <laughs> yeah it was odd. But i think that probably docked biden points too i mean the whole thing did not feel like a presidential debate and the question in my mind was like is that just kind of what i was expecting because again that's just kind of where we but are who do you in think this dialogue people but- blame that on i do feel like it's undoubtedly president trump did more interrupting like i think that's clear yeah, there, there's no doubt about that. I, I yeah, I, you know, I texted some friends and some of the best responses I got because I, I didn't even know what I thought. So I was trying to see what other people thought. You know, one was who won the debate? And the answer was Chris Wallace. Um, another <laughs> one was this is like, you know, Thanksgiving after a few bottles of wine. Right. Um, and then I, I, you know, texted one group of friends who I knew were together that are not involved in politics, but, you know, some to the left, some to the right. And pretty much unequivocally, it was um, this is awful. So I, I don't I don't know what that means, but that's that's what I got out of yeah. it, and it seems like that's what everyone got out of it. I mean, do you think one, it changed anybody's minds? No, I don't know. How it came. I don't know. I mean, here's the thing: is like if if you're not reading the news day in day out, like it may have meant something to have Joe Biden look at the camera and say your family. If you just wanted to know that someone was looking out for you, that may have resonated. There were things about Obamacare, the ACA that were brought up that may have resonated with some people. He did get some substantive points in. If someone was coming for substance and that was going to make up their mind, then I do think that Joe Biden provided more in this scenario. But we're in one place that's most relevant to us is, is the climate discussion, right? And that did come up. I did not expect it to come up. I don't think it was on the agenda. So I was surprised. I tweeted out earlier being like, here we go again. And sure enough, Chris Wallace brought it up and he asked the president point blank if he believed uh, that global warming was an issue. And and, and this was, interestingly, President Trump did say, like, 
to some extent, yes, I think was the quote on greenhouse gases. And then he touted his environmental record. He said, we want crystal clean water and air. He said, we've been working toward the cleanest air, like implying that they'd actually had taken some steps. And so I do want to fact check that because, you know, there have been a lot of, of regulations that have been rolled back under the Trump administration. The New York Times tracker finds that the administration is reversing 100 environmental rules with 68 rollbacks already complete and 32 still in progress. In fact, this has been one of the most successful items on Trump's to-do list uh, when compared to his 2016 campaign promises. And so President Trump saying that, you know, he's actively working to improve air and water is misleading, uh, you know, and then, he you know, he pivoted quickly to say he's planting a billion trees. I don't think you even say that or give any kind of hat tip to climate change unless you're feeling some kind of pressure from voters to address the issue or at least not call it a hoax. So, you know, I think Trump's recent ban on offshore drilling seemed to be symbolic of that. So it's like, you know, we discussed with young conservative climate activist Benji Backer in an earlier episode, you know, Republicans can't stick their head in the sand on climate and the environment really anymore. Of course, we're all watching to see what the actions actually are, but I want to put that to you, Brandon. Like, you know, when 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 Trump said that, you know, we want clean air, clean water. I mean, what do you do? You think anyone was convinced of that or no? I, don't know. I mean, he has no plan. Like you said, he's rolled back the regulations. He has no climate plan whatsoever. If you consider that the entire economy had to shut down because he failed on the coronavirus and we reduced emissions that way. Uh, that's not the way that we want to go about reducing emissions. He did say he liked electric vehicles, which I was happy to hear that. Uh, but he said he provided incentives for them, and he was the one that killed the tax credit extension for EVs. So that made no sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I found the entire climate section of the debate totally worthless, which is unfortunate because I think we'd all talked about how we wanted to see that in some of the primary debates and in this debate. Um, I think, you know, what I've heard Administrator Wheeler say and what I think President Trump maybe intended to say but didn't understand is that the Clean Air Act in the conservative view is focused on criteria pollutants. I don't know what levels are now. I have no idea. So I'm not going to say that they're, they're less or more. But I think what he was trying to pivot to was, you know, we believe the environmental protection, not we being me, but I mean, their administration believes that the Environmental Protection Agency is there to reduce criteria pollutants and things like that. Uh, but that is not you know, directly related to the climate, other than the fact there are co-benefits. I think he missed an opportunity. I think they both did, frankly, to talk about climate, because while it is true that better forest management practices would have a, a positive impact on forest fires, it is also true that a change in climate is going to continue to make these disasters more frequent and worse. So if we passed an all-encompassing climate bill today, would that impact next fire season? I think the answer is unequivocally no. But would it change fire seasons in the future? Absolutely. And if we had done it 10 years ago, would it be helpful now? Absolutely. And 20 years ago and so on and so forth. And he runs the U.S. Forestry Service, so he could make changes if he wanted to. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. Congress has to do that. But I think a president's job is to come to Congress with a plan um, and, and tell them what they need and then try to negotiate an outcome. So I, I, don't, I don't dispute that point. Um, what I do think is that uh, Biden, you know, talks about climate a lot. It's a big part of his campaign. It's a big part of his plan. And for those Americans out there who, who aren't anti-climate change, they're not climate deniers, they're just not informed, there was a real opportunity to inform them. And I, and I think he, he, I don't even, I, I want to say he swung and he missed, but I don't think he swung. I don't, I don't know what that was. A couple things. You know, I, I wish that Democrats like Joe Biden would just push back on this notion that uh, to have, to address climate change, it's going to, you know, cost so much more that's going to hurt the economy. I mean, Obama proved with the Recovery Act, we made those investments uh, and invested $90 billion in the clean energy. It didn't hurt the economy. The economy grew. The economy did better. Um, investing in these technologies does create jobs, does improve the economy. We This is not a theoretical concept. There is data and a track record to support Hard, that. hard job. Hard, hard, hard. <laughs> That's so how Biden it's, raised it. It's just a tired trope to set this up as like, well, you know, Democrats want to do all this stuff on, you know, climate change and it's going to raise your energy prices when it's proven not to be true. And so I wish there was a little harder, you know, pushback on that. And I do, I do wish we painted, you know, the idea of what a 
clean energy job is just done a better job of sort of landing that, you know, for the person that you're talking about, Shane, that doesn't pay attention to this all the time, probably doesn't know what the term weatherize means, but what, what is that job? What does that installation job look like where you're swapping out, you know, fossil fuel? So I do think Trump won there where he just, Biden said weatherization, which is accurate and correct. And it's great that we're getting into the details, but you need to connect the dots, I think, to what that means for someone's life in the real world. And Trump quickly pivoted to get rid of cows. And even though a lot of people are just rolling their eyes because it's like that is not really what the Green New Deal is trying to do. Trump just captured the narrative there very quickly to something that people may have heard of, whether or not they've fact checked it. And I think Biden's only counter to that was to take it home, as you say, and paint a picture of what a job would look like in this new space. And he may have missed an opportunity there. He said like the right thing sort of. But if you're trying to sell this vision, I don't know if he nailed it. I remember we were doing prep for uh, cabinet secretaries early in the Obama administration, um, and they were going to go testify up on the Hill. And in the prep session, they asked, what's a clean energy job? And Tom Vilsack was like, there are 8,000 parts in a wind turbine. Somebody has to make those parts. Somebody has to assemble those parts. Somebody has to install them. And then somebody has to do the you know operation maintenance on those parts. And that's why one of the fastest growing jobs in America is a wind turbine technician. And so I just hope that we can just paint that picture for Americans so they understand uh, if we make these investments, what that job looks like for them, because it's real and it works. And, and here's where I wish, you know, Republicans generally, but President Trump specifically, just because we're talking about this debate, could really make an impact is Republicans and Democrats don't often argue about what needs to be done. The argument is often about what the proper role of government is and what the proper role of the individual is and what the proper role of the private sector is. For whatever reason, in the climate debate, Republicans are not fully engaging in that. So what I, what I would like to see a Republican say if they have a better idea um, is, yes, climate change is a challenge, and here's how it's creating harm, and here's why we need to solve it, but here's my plan that is that is more you know private sector based or that's more whatever you want to say, whatever you want to do, have a plan because we shouldn't be arguing about what challenges our country faces. We should be arguing about how to best confront them. I want to fact check. That earlier... was just like the Lincoln Douglas debate right there compared to what we saw yeah. on TV. <laughs> so, yeah, so polite. I don't even like some tea. So I don't think we drank enough. <laughs> um, I want to fact check something a little earlier that we were talking about, like what has happened under the Trump administration. So this is pulling from an Associated Press article from June 2019. They were studying what had happened to the air under uh, Trump, the Trump administration Basically, uh, over the last two years, the nation had more polluted air days than just a few years earlier federal data shows. While it remains unclear whether this is the beginning of a trend, health experts say it's troubling to see air quality progress stagnate. Um, while it notes that air quality is determined by a bunch of different factors, including natural ones, air, air quality did worsen under the Trump administration in terms of more polluted air days. And it says that, of course, pulling back regulations is known to only make these issues worse, which is something that the Trump administration has done. So again, it may take a while to get all the data in on what's happened under the Trump administration, but so far it, sh it, sh it points to not great progress so far. And certainly going forward, if, if regulations are pulled back, there will not be any improvement. So... I think that's important to note because President Trump and his EPA have claimed both at this debate and at other moments in time that they have been making the air and the water cleaner. And it is true that some criteria air pollutants have gone down, but others like ozone and particulate matter are actually up, uh, not to mention carbon emissions were surging ahead of the pandemic. So I'm not sure all those stats can be attributed to the Trump administration because some of their regulations will take time to actually take effect. But in terms of what's happened on his watch, that's sort of, uh, you know, a fact check I wanted to put out there. Any other takeaways from the debate? I mean, I was glad that Vice President Biden mentioned the Recovery Act. He should take a lot of credit for that. I mean, it did wonderful things. And one of the investments was Tesla, you know, which now has 50,000 jobs as the, you know, world's uh, most valuable, you know, car company. It's one of the top 10 most valuable companies in America. They're opening a new plant in, in uh, Austin, Texas, uh, with lots of manufacturing jobs. I mean, um, that's the kind of stuff that Biden's proposing to invest in, in in his administration. We can create more companies like Tesla that employ lots of people. And he's already called out, you know, he wants to have top wages for them. So, um, you know, I thought... That but he stopped short of saying he supports the Green New Deal. Do you think that hurt Biden? He said, that is not my plan. I'm the Democratic Party. Earlier on in the debate, he noted 
But then he kind of waffled a little bit and said the Green New Deal wouldn't cost as much as President Trump was implying. That was a little bit of a confusing moment. But what is your thought on Biden saying that is not my plan, the Green New Deal? You all know that I support the Green New Deal. So did it hurt my heart just a tiny bit? Yeah. Uh, Yes. Uh, (laughs) But that doesn't lessen or diminish in any way, shape or form uh, my passion for Joe Biden and working my heart out for him to win this election. Because I think Democrats in this election are keeping their eye on the ball. I mean, we have to win. The stakes are so high. And so I think, you know, if you were watching tonight and you saw Trump being a giant a-hole, uh, and you're pissed off about it, and you see what Joe Biden's trying to do, and you want to do something about it, text 30330 <laughs> and put in CE4B, and you become a uh, Biden climate voter. Well, if I ever have a marketing campaign, I'm hiring Brandon. He's yeah. going to sort you, of... So you suddenly you know, flip into this like marketing voice. You're just like, text CE4B. Like, your voice changes. <laughs> I, honestly, I... I, I I, I'm beating this drum and it doesn't matter, I guess, at this point, but I'm surprised at how poorly that segment went. Like, I, I feel like Democrats spent an entire what, year. Our podcast segment? No, 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 no. no. The, the, the climate segment. Like, it, part of it's Chris Wallace's fault because I think they're given six categories and they're preparing for those. And there's a lot going on in the world. So you can't, you know, memorize every fact about everything all the time. I don't think that's fair to ask of any human being. I thought it, yeah, okay. But at the same time, I mean, Democrats really spent a year talking about their climate plans. And while I didn't expect Trump to have anything comprehensive to say on the subject, I guess I did expect Joe Biden to have something to say. Well, and this is the reason why I don't think his comments about the Green New Deal, Julia, will hurt him with uh, the you know progressives because they the people that uh, think about this stuff and are focused on it know what his plan is. And he has a great plan that incorporates many elements of the Green New Deal. And I think he hit some of those points tonight. You know, you heard about 6 million buildings that, you know, would like to, he'd like four to million. retrofit. Well, 4 million buildings, 2 million homes. Oh, yeah. So 6 million total. Um, and, you know, more more investments, uh, the $2 trillion uh, to address this crisis. So I think, you know, hopefully Americans heard elements of that plan. Chris Wallace raised elements of that plan in his questioning. Uh, so I do think there's progress made in that sense. You know, and I think I, you know, regardless of who you're voting for, or what your position is, weatherization is something that I think would actually matter to people. They talked about it in a way that it, you know, was one line item out of 200 million in the federal budget, which it is. But at the same time, if you own a home or you've tried to improve your home or make it more energy efficient, um, you know that windows cost about a thousand dollars per to replace. That's not cheap. Uh, most people can't afford it who are doing well. People who are not doing That's well. That's how much it costs. Gosh, yeah, I did not know that. It really that. does with installation. So um, most people who are doing well cannot afford that. And most people who are not doing well, all people who are not doing well cannot afford that. So th- that's something that I think would resonate for people who know they have leaky windows, who know they have drafty windows, who know they have issues in their home, that there's a federal program that could help them afford those things. That would really help them to understand that. It's targeted to low income people. And it's really simple stuff. Like sometimes adding some insulation into the home can reduce heating costs so much. And so you know, people, and it creates jobs. People go into these homes and they put the installation in and they reduce, uh, you know, electric bills for I think we're all on the same people. page of, of, the, of, of what the opportunity is there. I mean, having moved into this new house myself, I'm like shocked at, yeah, like, oh, wow, this is how much it costs to heat something. I literally didn't have a thermostat in my last home. So it's like, I get it now. Um, but yeah, was it painted in a way that people understand is the question coming out of this. But going back to the point of, you know, I am the Democratic Party. I don't support the Green New Deal. Thinking of it purely on a political level, there's maybe some moderates who maybe come out for Joe Biden because he said that. Who knows? They, they again, dolls how depends on what information they're receiving, how they're viewing terms like the Green New Deal. But purely to put your pundit hat on, it's like maybe it actually helped him that he did step away from that. Hopefully, you know, for him, He's going to hope that the left doesn't abandon him because of that, but he may have done it for a reason. I always laugh when Trump, you know, accuses the people who support the Green New Deal of wanting to ground the airplanes. It's like the airplanes are grounded right now because he screwed up the coronavirus. That's actually uh, <laughs> literally grounded, grounded the, the airplanes. airplanes. He did. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I guess, I'm flying next week for what it's worth. But 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 I <laughs> you and the COVID travel. We talk, well, it's, it's it's less expensive. We we and there's no middle seat, so it's pretty Can good. Can you hear my face? There's more space. Calm, um, but you, so. <laughs> Um, we talked earlier about, I told you, I knew a lot of people who said, you know, I don't know if I'm voting for Trump, but I don't know if I can vote for Biden. Um, and a lot of it is, you know, people, Biden's been around a while. People know who he is and they don't like him or dislike him, which is in this political climate, pretty good. He's just sort of there. And I think he reclaimed that mantle. You mentioned moderate voters. I think, 
Um, for some people who say, you know, I have no problem with Biden, but I can't vote for him because all this crazy stuff is going on. I don't want to be part of that progressive movement. For him to say, I'm the Democratic Party, while that probably came off as odd and it did to me, to a lot of people, I think there are some moderates who said, that's what I was waiting to hear. That's what I was hoping so, to hear. So that might have helped Shane, did it change your mind? Did you feel like Biden stepped up? On your I, behalf? I viewed him much more favorably um, on those two points. Um, on, you know, how he talked about crime and rioting, which I think has really been something that a lot of us have been waiting to hear. Um, and, you know, how he tried to reclaim the mantle of the Democratic Party. I'd like to see him be more more forceful on that point. But, um, but yeah, I, I'll be honest. For people who are sort of running in the center like me, 90 minutes of garbage. But those are two things that, that I think a lot of people have been waiting a long time to hear. So I think that was helpful. God, if you're the center, Shane, who's the right? <laughs> not me buddy that, that's what i've been trying to tell you well he ain't no greenie coming from a guy who just bought a land rover who said he was gonna buy an ev oh gosh <laughs> put that on here i'm gonna lose my streak. did crew. you really oh no well, no so i actually I, you know what? let's talk about this because i don't take responsibility for this i went to the dealership and i think i told you this before with every intention of buying an ev i have three kids all of whom are legally required to be in car seats and also i want them to be safe so they need to be in car seats there is not an EV under $100,000 that can even come close to fitting three car seats in the back. Not even close. And I'm not even sure that, that some of those higher-end Teslas would actually be able to fit three across. So there's two things, right? One is that people with children also deserve to have the right to drive electric vehicles if that's what they want to do and, and we'll all be better off for it. But two, there really aren't salesmen who are trained on this at all. If you ask any car salesman at any dealership, maybe other than a Tesla, about this looks great. What do I need to do in my home? How do I upgrade my circuits? What kind of power do I need? What's the process like? They don't know, and they'll redirect you to a car that they know how to sell. And that's a, that's that's not a good thing for, for a 2035 EV mandate in this state, by the way. Yes, yeah. So Governor Gavin Newsom, for anyone who may have missed the news, declared by 2035 will phase out all fossil fuel, all new fossil fuel vehicles. So there will still be used ones, and you can buy a used one. So it's not like they're all gone but yeah systems are gonna have to change for that to happen and the grid's gonna have to change to accommodate that i was really happy to see him do that um i think he needed to sort of make his mark on the climate change issue i mean he had dealt yeah. with pg and e and he's been dealing with the wildfires but like a forward-leaning policy um i was really yeah. excited to see it can we actually dig into that because i didn't like it and, and i'm someone who who wants to see everything electrified we've talked about this a lot except it's, your own vehicle well no i wanted my own vehicle that you know the, the market the market isn't ready for it and, that, and that's my bigger issue is the market should be ready for it we should have rules regulations incentives and everything else that we can have to get the market ready for it but when california is going through rolling blackouts optically speaking is that the right time to put a mandate in place because I want to get as many EVs on the road as possible. I think we all need to be more creative and thinking about what kind of policies and incentives we can give utilities to make that happen. But why wouldn't Governor Newsom do the hard work of figuring out how we get our, our grid up to date, what investments we can make to be ready for EVs on the road by 2035, exclusively EVs, rather than just make an announcement that's totally detached from what we're experiencing here right now today? I think it's showing leadership and then we got to pull those pieces together, but then it gives, there's a North star now, like we're setting this goal. We now like there's an urgency to figure out all the things that you're talking about, Shane. Well, I hope what one of those, one of those things I hope is that we have enough auto manufacturers. And I know there's a lot of companies who are, who are bringing new lines to the market, but that can accommodate, um, families like mine, because it's not just about having a family of five. The car seats themselves are, are wide. I mean, if you Google, um, cars that can fit five car or three car seats, you're going to come up with a handful tops and no EVs. So I, I hope that um, the GMs make an electric Hummer, aren't they? Yeah, they're making one, and a lot. Uh, Ford's got uh, some cool uh, uh, cars in in the in the docket. I think Rivian's got some SUVs, but none of these are actually available for me to purchase right now. And so the you know yeah, I I'm, but if you need a car now, I actually went through the same thing where we're a one car household, but. First of all, we didn't have anywhere to charge prior to recently moving. Um, and just, we well, only a, drive long distance. You got a garage, you know, Julia, yeah. like you're well, set up, you get a home charger. We live in a tiny place. Our, like, literally a car does not fit in the garage. It's so small. Who lived in these places? I don't know. But um, <laughs> at least I don't li actually live in the garage anymore. It's a real upgrade. Um, anyway, yeah, it is hard when you get into your lifestyle and the real world use of your vehicle. Like it, like I would never have thought to measure a car seat, right? But that clearly is a real thing for you. And like for us, it's like we only drive long distances where you want to get out of Dodge. And so 
yeah, you want a bigger car that can accommodate surfboards, bicycles, all that kind of stuff. And for a long time, something in our budget was just not available in that size. Rivian one day, maybe. Yeah. I'm absolutely hopeful. And, and, you know, honestly, when I went to the car dealership, there was a 0% chance I'd ever even thought about getting a Land Rover because I can't afford them. And because, you know, it's not what I was looking for. I was trying to save on mileage. Uh, this is pre COVID when I actually thought that the commute was going to, was going to keep up. But I also realized that since there are no EVs that can accommodate a family, this will probably be the last ever ICE car I buy in my life. So I might as well get the one that I've wanted my whole life and, and we'll see how that works out. <laughs> Shane's getting the, the thumbs down from Brandon. Uh, yeah, Brandon, did you want to say something? I do have something I am very excited about. Yes. Um, clean energy for Biden. Here we this go again. organization that uh, I am proud to have helped launch, uh, it's been just remarkable um, the growth and what is happening here. So first of all, you know, we have recruited over 8,000 volunteers. Uh, this has become a real organization. We've raised over $2.3 million for the Biden campaign. And, you know, I'm also going to plug it here, but also yeah. <laughs> um, I think what's Go cool on. about it is it's rare, I think, in the climate community um, for industry folks, uh, for uh, hardcore, like, you know, policy wonks, uh, and environmental justice activists to come together uh, and work really closely together. And I think that that is something politically uh, that we need to do. And Clean Energy for Biden is a really great start for that. So we have like, you know, uh, former or current Sunrun folks, you know, that are a big part of this. We have like, you know, Maggie Thomas, who's been on the show and is top policy expert on climate. Um, and then Evergreen we have like, action, I think. you yeah. know, EJ community folks like Nicole Steele. Uh, so it's been... A really terrific uh, group of people in this organization. We have state chapters all over the country, Texas, North Carolina, Colorado. This thing has really grown. And so one of the things that we're doing is we're recruiting people to be Biden climate voters. So if you text to 30330. Oh, God. Here we go. Here we go. Really? Just text 30330. <laughs> okay, that's it. We got it. We got it. CE4B. Okay. And you'll sign up and you'll be a Biden climate voter. So do you need a disclaimer for that? Yeah, Julia? I know. Yeah, we are not affiliated with any campaign on this podcast as a, as a note to everybody. Well, hey, hey, let me ask you <laughs> as a, an a serious question. As now. an individual. Yeah, well, I won't nail you down on substance because I realize that internal deliberations are not meant to be shared externally. But would you say that, let's say that Biden were elected, we've seen the legislation that comes from House Democrats, we've seen, you know, some of the policies promoted by Senate Democrats, we've seen Biden's plan. But do you know, like day one, you've worked in an administration, you know how this works. Do you think if he assumed the White House in January, there would actually be an executable plan ready? Do, do you think that all of you have worked together to create a plan that you could action administratively and then send requests to Congress? Or is it just sort of a bunch of ideas swirling around? No, I think there would be an executable plan. Um, if you remember with o with Obama, uh, the Recovery Act was voted on, I think, in February. You know, that didn't come together after January 20th. Um, you know, there was a lot of work that went into that during the transition team. Um, you had a lot of things that happened in Congress uh, prior to the you know transition. I think it's a good thing we can talk about today is there's been a lot of pieces of legislation that have been moving, you know, in the Congress right now that may not get enacted, but they're placeholders uh, for potential pieces of legislative text that you could move on very quickly next January. And so I think that's what Democrats have been doing in the Congress is setting that up so you don't have to start from scratch. And I think a Biden transition team with, um, you know, a lot of people with experience and who have been thinking about these issues for a long time uh, are going to be able to put together some actionable stuff. They would have a plan for, you know, day one, you know, administrative, what can you do with executive authority and then also legislative yeah, We talked uh, to Podesta actions. about things like that, John Podesta. So I recommend that interview. I do think there are legitimate debates around how to solve climate change around, you know, what communities to invest in, making sure communities are invested in that need it the most versus other priorities, uh, how capitalistic to be or not, um, how much to invest in local solutions, how much to invest in new technologies versus deployment of existing ones. I mean, there will there will be discussions. It's not like it's all going to be entirely kumbaya. I'm glad you brought that up because while I have no idea what kind of deliberations are going on inside the campaign or inside Clean Energy for Biden, I, I do you know have experience on Capitol Hill and have seen things grind to a halt. And I'm just 
color me skeptical that whatever is being decided now is even remotely similar to what could actually be uh, executed in, in 2021. But the reality is something will probably be executed. You know, I mean, there's the, there is no real alternative right now in terms of a comprehensive climate clean energy package on the right. So, I mean, I want to caveat with that too. it's going to turn on what's the makeup of the Senate and what do the Democrats want to do structurally? Do they want to work within reconciliation? Do they want to get rid of the filibuster? But these are going to be big decisions that hopefully we're in a position of uh, majority to make. We should also say that there's a real chance that Trump wins again, right? So I'm curious to know about what that looks like. And do Republicans have a plan? I know you have a question, Brandon, specifically on that for Shane. Yeah. But what do you think the odds are that he'll win? And then number two, what, what, what does the cabinet look like under a Trump presidency? Does he like get crazier? Does he get the same people? Like, what does that look like? So I, we talked about this a little bit this morning, um, and I said there's a non-zero chance uh, that Trump wins, and I, I was I was sort of underselling, but I, I personally view this election as a complete coin toss. What's interesting to me is that, anecdotally speaking, I would have told you in 2016 that Trump would have to lose by 30 points, because I, I don't think I talked to anyone who said they were voting for Trump, whether on the left, on the right, in the middle, people who I know well but don't really know their politics, no one. Um, and the polling, you know, showed him getting getting um, crushed, but not nearly as bad as it is this time around. This time around, if you look at the polling, it's pretty difficult to make a credible case that that Trump can win the election or might win the election. But anecdotally speaking, I hear I don't know many people who say I want to vote for Biden. They might say I'll vote for Biden because I think it's the lesser two evils. They might say I'll write someone in. Someone said to me yesterday, um, I'll write someone in because I don't lie to people and I don't want to have to tell people I voted for Trump. I mean, so I do think there's a lot of skepticism. Shane, in, in your world, especially in like battleground states, seven members of George W. Bush's cabinet have come out and endorsed Biden. Does that make a difference to people like in your world or is that like just too inside baseball? I think it's way too inside baseball. And even as someone who appreciates inside baseball, I mean, to be frank, I don't give a shit what Christine Todd Whitman thinks at all. And, and I care about the environment and I understand that she served under George Bush. And I understand that, you know, she's a very well-respected and accomplished individual, but I, I don't, if I don't care and I'm very familiar with her background, um, I can't imagine that average, you know, moderate or Republican voter X in state Y um, cares about that. What I, what I think it does do is as the numbers stack up, if you don't pay attention to politics closely, but you voted re reliably Republican, you voted for McCain, you voted for Romney, you voted for Bush, you might start to say, all right, I respect all these people. I voted for them. And everyone that worked for them, not some, but everyone um, is saying the same thing. You might start to look a little bit closely at, at why that might be. But I don't think any one name in particular would move the needle. On the cabinet question, because I think it's an interesting one, something different has to happen. I don't mean because I don't like you know some of the people in the administration. I actually have a great deal of respect for, for many of them. But there's a lot of acting uh, positions right now. And as we all saw in this last week, the Bureau of Land Management um, acting director, I think his name is William Perry Pendley, was um, blocked, not only blocked from continuing that role by a federal judge, but I think also the judge questioned whether any of the actions that he's taken while in office are valid or whether or not they all need to be undone. And the only reason I mention that is that a second Trump term, if it came to be, is going to require Senate confirmed um, qualified leaders. And I, I think that's going to be a real challenge for I don't I, the White House is going to have to figure out how they nominate people who can get confirmed by a Senate, whether that's a 5149 Republican, a 5149 Democrat or, or somewhere around there. They're going to have to start nominating people that will be able to gain bipartisan support. Because if you don't have con Senate-confirmed individuals in Senate-confirmed positions, his entire administration could be washed out by one federal judge. And that's something that I don't think anyone should should want for themselves. Well, for that's a perfect segue to the Supreme Court and getting a new judge um, approved in the wake of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death, which we should acknowledge is a massive loss uh, in many ways for the country, uh, not for political reasons, but just for a lot of people being inspired by her career. Um, but where, here we are. When, when Where were you when you found out and what happened? I was sitting right where we are right now in my new little office slash guest room, and I literally went oh my god and clapped my hands and like spoke out loud i was just like wow i just not that you get a warning that these things are going to happen i just was like shocked i don't know i was just like was not anticipating where were you did it like hit you hard 
this is going to be a self promotional or a podcast promotional answer, but I swear to God, it's true. I was sitting outside at a, at a Mexican restaurant called Cisco's with several friends and their wives. And I didn't know, I, I, I mean this sincerely, I don't know their politics. Like we just don't talk about that stuff. And the first thing I did was pulled out my phone and slacked to you two something along the lines of, wow, everything just changed. And I didn't mean that as a positive or a negative. I just meant it as a like, holy shit. We've always talked about this election being strange. And Brandon always said, we don't know what it is, but we know something will happen. It's and, almost and it'll comical have how this year has unfolded, though. It's just like in terms of like politically, just like all the factors that are now at play. It's insane. We haven't even touched on tr Trump's tax documents that were just covered by The New York Times. But it's just like so many more pieces to this puzzle. I was riding my bike to right. boxing right. and uh, my phone just started like I thought I was going to like jump off of my bike. It was like overheating. One of them was your, you know, Slack messages. And I pulled over on my bike and I, you know, looked and I was like, oh my God, you know, this is crazy. And I biked two minutes longer. I got to the beach. My sparring partner was there. And like, I got on, I like buckled, my knees buckled. And I was like this, you know, I just was like so overwhelmed by what happened. And he asked me if I was okay. And I was like, well, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg just died and, Alberto, the sparring guy, said, "Who's that?" <laughs> well, and, and so that's that's yeah. part of the reason I mentioned that I don't I didn't know the people who I was with politics because you never know how people respond. So I went from mid conversation to in my phone, and someone said to me, "What happened? Something come up for work?" I said, "Oh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg just died," and two of the women, I mean, their faces just dropped. I don't know how anyone else felt, right? I don't know what people were thinking or feeling. But it, it never even occurred to me in answering that question really quickly that that would have a profound impact on someone sitting at a table next to me who I've known for years, but never, ever once talked about any of this stuff with. So what a, what a weird occurrence. Well, yeah, I mean, Ruth Bader Ginsburg also just what an outsized figure, right? Like she not only had a huge impact on gender issues, but also has a strong environmental legacy. She wrote opinions that created citizens' rights to sue polluters under the Clean Water Act and the government's right to regulate cross-state air pollution. And what's interesting is that even some conservatives, you know, have come out and, and acknowledged her legacy and her contributions to the country. Um, so yeah, it's a historic moment. Um, you know, but looking forward, uh, Amy Coney Barrett is the um, the new nominee. Seems likely this that uh, she will be confirmed ahead of the election. She was just confirmed by the Senate recently for a lower court, so we'll have to see. Although you know, that kind of depends. I guess Shane, I'm curious to go to you. Like, when you think of like regulations that are up for discussion right now, um, what is her? What would she mean? And do you think she'll get confirmed before election day? I, I'm or in the lame certain, duck. I'm almost certain she'll get confirmed before election day. I think last time we spoke about this, um, I had heard that she would get uh, nominated and have her hearings before election day, but confirmed after. Uh, that was because um, two Republican senators had already said they were firm no in uh, Senator Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski. And the rumor mill, at least, and, and uh, semi-credible, I thought, was that Mitt Romney was also going to be a hard no and that there was just too many moving parts. Um, it <clears throat> turns out not, that yeah. Senator Romney, you know, he didn't say he was a yes, but he said he wasn't a no on process. He wasn't going to vote against the nominee on process. So there's still more to learn there. I actually think the two most interesting things about her from a climate perspective, I don't mean in, in, in life, are one, I think everyone knows that that Chevron deference. And for our listeners, uh, that's from the Chevron case. I want to say 19, was it 84 or 94? Uh, 84. The Supreme Court basically ruled that if a law is, is um, ambiguous in any way, then the administration is going to be granted wide latitude to interpret that law in whatever way they see fit, and courts will will side with the administration unless they're clearly in violation of law. Um, I think all of our listeners are familiar with Massachusetts versus EPA in 2007, said even though the Clean Air Act made no explicit mention um, of greenhouse gases, well, they did uh, name other criteria pollutants that as long as the administration made an endangerment finding that greenhouse gases posed uh, a danger, then they could regulate it. Those are two areas where I think a conservative justice, and I mean conservative small c, not not you know politically oriented, but just you know strict textualist of the Constitution. Uh, I think they would say that uh, the legislative branch has ceded too much authority to the executive branch, and I could see Chevron being walked back, which would have a huge impact on a lot of regulations. I could also see um, the Clean Air Act or Massachusetts versus EPA being significantly narrowed, if not overturned. Now, before I, I turn it over to you guys. Well, I do think we should regulate greenhouse gases, and I do think we should have standards on greenhouse gases. I have said since we started this podcast, and I've said since I started working in this field, 
Congress needs to pass a law that very explicitly addresses greenhouse gases and gives the administration the authority it needs to regulate greenhouse gases in a way that makes sense, that can be done economy-wide, and that won't get tied up in court for several years, as you saw with the Clean Power Plan. So if Massachusetts versus EPA goes down and nothing fills that gap, I think we're all worse off for it. But if it's a forcing mechanism to make Congress do their actual job, we could find ourselves with a real climate bill that could actually get us where we want to go much more quickly than we will with a whipsaw of my regulation versus your regulation versus mine every election cycle. Shane, you know, my legal skills are very rusty. Um, You know, ACA, the, um, you know, Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, was passed by the Congress. And now... um, Amy Coney Barrett is going to get on the court and like <laughs> unwind that. Is there a danger that even if we pass stuff through the Congress on climate legislation, that this six-three conservative majority that could be um, the majority for you know many many years to come would unwind even congressional legislation? It's it's my belief, and of course we're all playing a guessing game at this point that. These conservative justices are not, you know, conservative in how we view Republican voters today. They're conservative in, you know, making sure separations of power stay in in line. I think a lot of conservative jurists would argue, and I would certainly argue as a non-jurist, but still a conservative, that John Roberts upheld the Affordable Care Act by calling it a tax. The administration was explicitly clear that it was not a tax. And so I think Chevron and that mentality really played into that. They wanted to uphold the law to you know, maintain the integrity of the court, and they found a way to do it. So I think if a, if a climate bill passed and was very clear on what authorities were delegated, I, I would imagine you'd have 9-0 in favor. I mean, you've seen with Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh since they've been seated. They're conservative scholars, but they have overturned Trump administrative actions that haven't had the proper legal foundations or haven't done the proper analyses. It's interesting. He's only like 17% of his like regulations have like the challenges have been successful. It's like, he's really had a hard time in the courts. Well, because I think these, these justices respect Congress's role just because one president appointed them. Your job is not to serve the president that appointed you. It's to serve the constitution and the separation of powers. And I truly believe that they will continue to do that, which doesn't bode well. I don't think for, for greenhouse gases being covered by the uh, clean air act, but I think it does bode well for Congress's intent being, honored what, what about states rights because i feel like that's a big question here in california we talk about governor newsom increasing uh through an executive order creating this tw- by 2035 phasing out fossil fuel vehicles things like that could end up before the supreme court will they uphold the california waiver will they allow states rights to continue you would think a small c conservative would be pro states rights and yet we are seeing at least the trump administration question that premise. I don't know, Shane. Well, I think it would depend. And and I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on the Clean Air Act in that way. But I think it would I think it would it would totally um, come down to what specifically the Clean Air Act uh, says with the delegation powers to the state and whether Trump followed proper procedure in taking California's waiver away. The, The law is very clear that Congress passed that it is up to the executive to determine whether or not California's waiver um, it remains available. The only question with Trump is he absolutely had the authority to take it away, but did he follow the proper procedure to do it? So these are issues that are that are far more procedural than substantive. But when Congress passes a law, um, unless that law violates the Constitution itself, it presumably will be upheld by the courts unless it's overly ambiguous. I mean, do you disagree with that? I hope so. <laughs> So what I would love to see, and, and again, I'll, I'll never get this. I'd love to see when any legislature is too ambiguous. I'd love to see the courts send it back. I don't want to see them make a decision about what it should have meant. I don't think any of us should want that. I'd like to see them go back to Congress and say, we, we don't know how to enforce this law because it was overly ambiguous and your intent is not clear. Hmm. That's interesting. All right. So I think the last thing we want to cover today uh, are some laws that have been moving in Congress. Uh, we talk about a lot of, you know, Things being stalled there, but the House just last week passed this uh, clean energy innovation bill, which is not like a green recovery or some massive, you know, comprehensive piece of legislation. It's, it is broad. It includes, I think, 16 previous bills that had moved through the House. Um, I know that Republicans have pushed back, but I think it has bipartisan support at various legs. It includes things like demonstration projects for clean energy projects, things like that. 
Um, and it also aligns with the Senate bill that I think stalled back in February, was it, Shane? I know you were tracking it at that point. It supposedly was moving again. So in theory, we should have in the House and the Senate some kind of energy innovation bill. And yet it seems like we're probably stalled. Is that just politics right now? Because we're leading up to the election. Shane, you're tracking this. What, what are your thoughts on these le- these pieces of legislation? For what it's worth, I think they're conferenceable. Um, I don't think they're the same bill with you know one minor tweak that needs to be aligned, but I think they cover the same areas of jurisdiction. Um, the House did not you know, go back to their Clean Futures Act. They didn't they didn't go for an economy wide scheme, though though I actually support one. I think they were they were sort of loyal to the structure of the Senate bill, just not the substance. And that would give the two chambers a chance to conference. Um, you know, I, I think House Republicans are not going to lend any support to this. Um, I saw a statement from from um, ranking member Walden and subcommittee ranking member Shimkus, both of whom I have a lot of respect and admiration for, saying, you know, we, we did our job. We reset the dialogue on climate change. And so we, you know, we, we've set the bar. That's just not true. I mean, I think they could do a lot more in working with Democrats to get some of these smaller bills moved. I think the bigger question, honestly, going back to the Supreme Court is, does Murkowski get her floor vote after saying that she will not support uh, Trump's Supreme Court nominee? Because ultimately, Mitch McConnell is going to decide that. And if what I do you think? I, I mean, if 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 she gets confirmed, maybe let bygones be bygones. But um, I can't imagine, uh, and I have no inside knowledge of this, but I can't imagine that Senator Darth Vader show mercy. It's it's hard for me to imagine that someone who is holding up your top priority with no substantive reason, just a procedural reason, that you'd feel super inclined to to move their top priority. Second part of that is, um, you know, McConnell did commit to moving it earlier this year, and um, there's going to be time to do stuff on the floor because they were supposed to be gone, and they're not going to be gone. They're going to be in Washington uh, holding these hearings. So who knows? I want to make a point, and then I have a question for you, Shane. My point, I think on the legislation, Julia, it reinforces what I said earlier, which is that if Biden wins and the Democrats take the Senate, there's a menu of policy options that have been established, whether it's the Moving Forward Act, whether it's the House Select Committee um, on the Climate Crisis um, you know, report that they put out, whether it's this uh, the Tonko bill, net zero by uh, 2050 um, uh, bill that was passed earlier, um, you know, whether it's this innovation bill, the Senate bill. There are so many different um, legislative texts out there that you could come together and put together a large package uh, pretty quickly. And so there could be a flurry of activity on this uh, between the election uh, and early next year. Uh, second point, Shane, what do you think that what just happened with the Supreme Court and the way that the Republicans and the Senate flip-flopped on the precedent that they set with uh, Merrick Garland uh, and voting on Obama's nominee in an election year where they said they wouldn't do it, and now they're moving forward. What does this do to the Senate generally? You worked on the Hill. What does that mean for climate legislation then early next year? Like, I mean, so many people are saying that... I think you're asking too profound of a question. It just means they're going to do what they're going to (laughs) do. No, but I mean, yeah. Do you think like now the Senate is forever changed? Or do you think it was? Or like, I mean, what... I I imagine it is. I mean, I, I imagine that the only scenario where the filibuster stays in place is if Republicans keep control of the Senate because they're not going to remove it. But I think that once that conversation even came to the fore, the combination of of Democrats saying they wanted to do that and of Republicans holding up um, the Merrick Garland nomination, which I actually tend to have people like Dianne Feinstein who said she won't get rid of the filibuster. Yeah. I, I don't have a lot of confidence that the Senate will function in six years the way it does now, maybe another year. Sure. And I get why Democrats are mad, right? I do think Republicans should move forward and confirm a nominee. It's their constitutional obligation. But I think that was also their constitutional obligation back in 2016. So I, I, I agree with you on that. I understand why Democrats are frustrated. I understand why they're going to continue to be frustrated if they have a simple majority and can't pass anything. Um, but one side or another, I think, as Harry Reid told us and told everyone who will listen over the last month is um, it's gone. It's just a matter of when. And once the filibuster is gone, I think everything else goes with it. Right. Well, we're going to leave it on that cliffhanger because we got to end this show. So time for our final segment. Say something nice for you to say something redeeming about the opposing political party. Do you have a say something nice in you to end out this evening of debates and discussion and at least one bottle of Pinot Noir? Brandon. <laughs> well, first of all, it was just awesome to hang with both of you. 
like yeah. see you in person and Yay. like like old times drink some beers turn on the podcast and see what happens like I screw know. these guests like i think we should <laughs> let's go back to jam band Great. put that in our next jam band. <laughs> thank you note. Jam, <laughs> jam band <laughs> second of all uh i wanted to say something nice about the um FERC chair uh, Republican appointee Neil uh, Chatterjee. He issued FERC order on uh, the last week, uh, 2222, um, which for energy policy nerds out there, you know, um, unlocks the demand response market. Uh, it allows demand uh, response to um, you know, participate in wholesale markets. So what does that mean? It means all these distributed resources uh, that are out there um, can be aggregated um, and participate um, in these markets. So you can get paid for reducing your energy consumption at certain times. Um, and so this makes for a more dynamic um, in electricity market where it's sort of a two-way you know, power flows using all these different uh, assets around the grid um, to make it uh, more you know, dynamic and will unlock even more renewables too. So this is a really good thing. People have been waiting for it for a while. There's been some steps in this direction, but uh, this is a big deal in, in the sort of electricity market world. Yeah. And did you say it's only a three three members of FERC right now. So like that was a pivotal vote. It was bipartisan. It was yeah. uh, one Republican, Neil Chatterjee, and one Democrat, and then one Republican dissenting. So yeah. it was a bipartisan deal but led by the chairman. Shane? Mine is for Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. I think most people would agree that he's pretty forward-looking on climate and someone who's, who's kept this issue at the top, um, his radar for, for his tenure in the Senate. Uh, he was speaking at the Green Tech Media Clean Energy Summit, which we actually, I think that was our first live show a couple of years ago. For it what was, it's yeah. Wow. Green Tech Media has been a great partner of the pod. Shane, you were just a baby back then. I know, so young, so young. Oh my God, I saw so you guys on like your first date meeting at the bar. Like, do you want to talk policy? Actually, <laughs> we talked sports. We talked sports, but Brandon mm. did concede that he you know, had a really difficult time filling up his EV on the way to San Diego. So this is why we both think we need more EV charging corridors. So um, I was driving the leash. Nissan Leash. Right. <laughs> so Senator Whitehouse made the point that if Democrats take control of the Senate, they will have the opportunity to put climate legislation on the floor. And he supports that because they can debate it. But he also made the point that debate is healthy, but a bipartisan bill is what's actually necessary. You're going to need at some point bipartisan support for a, a, a rational climate bill that can actually stand the test of time and be durable. That's a point that I've tried to make on this podcast for years. I think, you know, we all have good days and bad days, but I think we do agree that that bipartisan agreement on climate is productive. I think that's why we do the show. So I had to Sheldon Whitehouse for that. All right. Well, this was I like Trump with Benji last. I mean, like, yeah, that's some negative feedback. Was it too much? Yeah, you got us a terrible <laughs> review on Apple Podcasts. Send us, send us a tweet, Benji. Was Brandon like Trump during the debate during our, our podcast last week? Uh, yeah, the interruptions were a common theme. Yeah, I mean, look, <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe I should have done or a better Benji. job. Maybe no. I wasn't Chris Wallace enough. You know, I didn't get in there, but uh, <laughs> tensions are clearly running high. I, I, it was a hard day. I came with an axe to grind because not against Benji, just against the Republicans in general. It was like our state was burning down. Trump was denying the science again. It was just a frustrating time. And uh, you know, I think Benji's tough, and and um, I thought. You know, I, I don't think he probably took it personally. I know you didn't. Um, and, I, and I think it's good that we have young conservatives who don't mind that inter, that interaction, that don't mind that interchange. Because uh, if you're going to be a conservative and you're going to you know, live your life that way from your early 20s on, but you're going to make climate a priority, you're going to run into some walls. And so he seems, you know, willing and ready to have those conversations. And I'm yeah. I'm hopeful. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the dialogue outside of the presidential debate stage on climate and energy has evolved so much. We have to take stock of that. There's so many ideas that are out there, people that are engaging, I think, in new and different ways. Like, it has come a long way. It made it to the debate stage. We have to celebrate that as a win. And we obviously immediately want to get our, you know, critiquing hats on and, and dig into the details, as we should. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a landmark moment in getting it out there. What happens next? We will wait and see. But for now, those listening can subscribe to Political Climate wherever you get podcasts. And remember to tweet at us at poly underscore climate. And we're on Instagram with the same handle. Brandon's looking at me like he wants to say something. And you could text 30330 oh 
CE4V. <laughs> Fine. If he's going to do that, I need one last plug. Did anyone here believe that it was going to be a Fox News host who was the first moderator to bring up climate change during a debate, even when it wasn't part of the script? Look, I think, I think Fox News is one of the most... Um, I, I mean, it's one of the most destructive forces in, you know, our American democracy. But Chris Wallace is is a solid journalist. Uh, and I think he did. I mean, it was an impossible job dealing with Trump tonight. I liked your suggestion, Shane. Uh, you should what, tell spray the, the audience candidates with no, water like, they they around the horn. Talking. He should have a mute button where he can yeah. mute the microphone. Yeah, it, honestly, I mean, I'm not I'm not even saying this to knock uh, President Trump, but if you want to have an interchange, sometimes you just have to be able to, to turn a microphone off. And Around the Horn is actually my least favorite ESPN sports talk show, but it's a cool device that they have if someone's just kind of yapping too long. They should use it at the Oscars, too, for what it's worth. <laughs> just and scene. All right. Time to When cut Susan Sarandon gets up there and starts talking about <laughs> progressive causes. All right, guys. If anyone I'm, starts I'm talking progressive causes. Right now. <laughs> Three zero. 330. Thanks for listening, everyone.